This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. One day on Kodiak Island in Alaska, Richard Louvre was walking down a narrow trail near a cabin where he was staying. This is a very wild area. Per capita bear population is huge compared to humans. And these are the Alaskan brown bears. These are the biggest of the grizzlies, I believe. They are. And like any bear, you don't want to surprise these grizzlies. Richard was all alone as he made his way to the local lodge. He wasn't paying attention to his surroundings. He was busy looking for something in his wallet. Suddenly, I stop in my tracks because I'm stopped by two blazing eyes that are looking right into mine, right in front of me, on the path. Fortunately for Richard, this wasn't an Alaskan brown bear. It was a fox. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I, as I describe it, I thought I was almost l- looking into a parallel universe. I could... It was almost seen like seeing planets in its eyes and stars. And I know that sounds woo-woo. It wasn't that literal, but I saw something there. Maybe you've also had a moment like this, a moment where you felt a connection with another species. It could have been a wild animal like a fox or a bird or even your dog. And it's in these moments where there is something, some understanding that happens between man and beast. When I was talking to the fox, I said, uh, you know, I'm going to step forward here. And I did. And the fox, not two feet in front of me, eases over to my side and then follows me up the path. Side by side, we walked up the path until the fox turned off the path and went into the high weeds and disappeared. Richard Louvre is a world authority on humans' relationship with the natural world, and his work has uncovered so much about this mysterious bond and how transformative it can be for our mental, our physical and spiritual health. How nature can help us look at things differently and even provide an antidote for loneliness. You know, maybe the fox was just telling me to pay attention. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. I've followed Richard Liu's writings for years. He's all about getting us back to nature, spending time outdoors. It's fascinating stuff. You might have come across his book, Last Child in the Woods, or heard a phrase I use all the time, nature deficit disorder. That was Richard. I was in a bookstore recently when his new book caught my eye. The title is Our Wild Calling. But it was the subtitle that really grabbed me. How connecting with animals can transform our lives and save theirs. As someone who's fortunate enough to enjoy that connection with wild animals, I wanted to hear more about how we can all be more aware of it. Richard argues that we're at a loss in our modern world because, as he believes, humans no longer spend enough time with our natural curiosity. He blames technology and what he calls antisocial media. 
the more high-tech our lives become, and they will get more high-tech, the more nature we need as a balancing agent. And there's a lot of studies that show that literally physiologically we need to balance the, what technology does to us. That doesn't make te- technology bad, but it does suggest that if that's all we do, that's all we become. The B word is something that comes up for me too, the balance word. And I, I, uh, I always turn to nature for, for, for lessons in that balance and, and ecology. And I'm always talking about how nature can bring that balance to people. And you just do it just so eloquently in, in, in your books. Um, I, why do you think we are getting more lonely following on from the, you know, the technology and overconnection? I mean, why do you think that, we, that you feel that we, we're getting more lonely? And your, your, your anti-social media phrase, I love, uh, that connects into this as well, doesn't it? But why do you think it's happening? Well, that's one of the major themes in our world calling. Uh, it's about the rise of human loneliness uh, that many medical folks uh, now describe as an epidemic. Not everybody agrees with that word, but many of them use it. They say this is a serious thing. And that loneliness may soon outrank obesity as a cause of early death. That's what some of the medical folks are saying. And by the way, one of the most disturbing studies that I report on in this book is a study of generational loneliness. Remember, probably, you know, I may be a little older than you, but uh, you remember how it was supposed to be elderly people who were the loneliest? Mm Mm-hmm. This study looked at generational loneliness, starting with the greatest generation, baby boomers, and on down, Gen X and all of that, millennials. Um, what they found is that the, lone, the, the, the younger the person was, the younger the generation was, the lonelier they were. Now, what does that say about a society in which the younger you are, the more likely you are to be lonely? Right, despite I, the hyperconnectedness, that's that's shocking, really, isn't it? It just, I, I guess they could look beyond that, couldn't they, and think, no, I'm not lonely. I'm technologically connected to lots of people, but that's not the definition of not being lonely, is it? No, and um, you know, people like to blame Facebook and and all of that, and I think there's plenty of blame to go around for that. But I think it's uh, rooted in an even deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness. As a species, we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why would we look for intelligent life on other planets when Stephen Hawking tells us that may not be a good idea to find? It's because we don't want to be alone in the universe. Now, religion plays a a role in this need to not be alone. But the irony is that we are not alone, not on this earth. We're surrounded by an ongoing conversation, an ongoing, what I call the whisper, of our fellow creatures on this earth. And the more one looks into the nature of that conversation, the more complex it gets, the more interesting it gets. And we can look to that conversation of other animals as a source of healing. Animals as a source of healing. In his book, Richard talks about a study from the University of Exeter Medical School. It looked at the therapeutic value of wild animals. The people who participated in the study, when they were in a park and detected more biodiversity, more species, they reported something curious, a greater sense of well-being. Richard says that most of the time, though, we're kind of unaware of nature, even when it's right under our nose. We're surrounded by intimacy, but we don't tap into it. We don't notice. We don't pay attention. That's not true of everybody. Some people do, and I bet the ones that you know that do are extraordinary people. 
Yes. And when you say this species loneliness, by alone, do you mean just it's important for us to know that there are other species out there, or is seeing and interacting with those other species important as well? I think interacting with those species with all of the senses that we can muster. And um, we have lots of these types of senses that we spend much of the day, and so do our kids, in their learning environments, just looking at that screen, living in the fiction that we can go anywhere in the world through the Internet. Well, we don't take our senses with us when we do that. And we spend a lot of time blocking out most of our senses for... You know, I don't know about you, but that to me sounds like the very definition of being less alive. What parent wants their child to be less alive? I don't know many. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And and so this really is fundamentally about being more alive. You know, the the way it works for me, the place where I come alive and uh, notice the things around me, um, and it was very literal to start with, was just being in the woods tracking bears and, you know, getting very good at that and looking at the world through the eyes of a grizzly bear that I'm tracking, whether it was a, a subtle turned over rock or scratch marks on a tree or the hair that a bear has left behind on a, a rub tree, all of those things. And what I found over time was doing that so much, I came away from those that experience in the field and started to apply it in life without really feeling and knowing that I was doing it and just became more aware and more just sort of cognizant of the things going on around me. It was very, very interesting. I think about it all the time because I, I, I like to think I'm someone who listens and takes takes note of what's happening around me. And I think I have the, the, the bears to think for that. It's been a pretty interesting journey. Well, you're not alone in that. That's a great story. For his book, Richard collected a lot of stories from people about their experiences with wild animals, memorable ones, and even stories that shifted a person's perspective in some pretty profound ways. One of the most vivid stories he told me was about his friend Paul Dayton. Who's an oceanographer at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And he talks about uh, when he was in college, actually in Seattle. He was going to school at the University of Washington, I'm pretty sure. Oh, God, I was a real stud. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. I was just a normal student. That's Paul Dayton. He's now in his late 70s. Paul's close encounter with an animal, a giant Pacific octopus, happened when he was scuba diving off San Juan Island near the U.S.-Canadian border in the Pacific Northwest. After hearing Paul's story from Richard, I was blown away. I had to hear it from Paul himself. So we tracked him down at his home in San Diego and called him up. When I tell people the story, they think, oh, that must have been scary. I think back at it with a a very pronounced warm feeling. It's actually one of my favorite memories of my life. We'll hear Paul's story after the break. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one. Asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. Thank <laughs> you. 
the diving in those days was much simpler. We didn't have sea view gauges. We had no idea how much air was in our tank. Paul Dayton was diving alone. And when we ran out of air, we would just breathe up. Uh, as you come up, the air in the tank expands a bit, and you get little sips of air. He was fairly deep, and the water was dark, typical for this part of the world. Probably a little eerie. And I was on my hands and knees watching one starfish attack another one, which is pretty exciting, but sort of slow motion. And the um, tank ran out of air. And um, again, at this point, that isn't that much of a problem. You just come up. And so I got was on my hands and knees uh, gathering my stuff and put it into my dive bag. And he was down there and he was staring at the, at the bottom and he was turning things over with his little shovel. And suddenly he feels something very large come above him and stop. You know, at first, you know, what's that? You know, as I got all dark and then, you know, I saw an arm. Oh crap, it's an octopus. And um, it's all over my head. At first, it was fine. Paul didn't panic. But then the octopus started to wrap her tentacles around his head and his face. And he couldn't get them off. Her legs were enveloping him. She had eight of them, and I only had two. And they're really strong. They, they look like they're squishy. But they're, when you're trying to fight with one, they're solid steel. Paul tried really hard to dislodge the octopus, to peel it off him. But he was no match for those strong arms. And remember, he's already running low on oxygen. And I realized I was never going to dislodge it that way without any air. So I relaxed, let it pull me down. I pushed off as hard as I could and pushed the octopus and me off the the bottom. As they go up through the column of water, he can feel the octopus moving around his body. And as he does that, he can feel the razor-sharp beak going around his neck. Octopuses feed through this beak. They use it to crush crabs and other food. And the beak has a poison gland too. And this is a big animal, 14 feet long and probably 80 pounds. A real sense of doom was settling in on Paul now. So probably at this point, I got more seriously concerned about getting rid of her. And I also at that point was realizing that I wasn't going to wrestle with her. I came up with the solution of relaxing. I don't think I had any other choice. And about that time, the octopus started releasing him slowly, relaxing. And he relaxed, Paul relaxed. Because I knew that she was not going to drown me anyway. I could still get my air. And so as I got a couple more sips of air coming up, and we'd come up really slowly, you have to breathe out really carefully when you're coming up, you come up slowly under those conditions. So we came up really slowly, and and I was able to get enough air to clear my mask a little bit, and I saw that she had sort of pulled away from me, and as I cleared my mask, I could see her eyes looking right in my eyes. And we held that gaze of looking at each other all the way up to the surface, and then they both hit the, the surface of the water. And Paul ripped off his mask, gasping for air. And the octopus sank down just below the surface and was still looking at him. They still had eye contact. 
And then this is the best part of the story. And then she started to fold up her arms and, and make like an airplane. It was the, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen um, is she backed off and got those really long arms streamed out behind her. She looked like a space shuttle before there was a space shuttle. It was just gorgeous, that brick red uh, octopus always maintaining the eye contact with me. And zooms down into the dark darkness. But she didn't just go straight down. She circled slowly, and I circled with her, maintaining the eye contact. What does Paul do? He puts his mask back on. And then took a deep breath and dove with her and went down as far as I could just because it was so much fun. I went down probably 20 feet or so. I went down quite a ways because I'd had a good breath of air. And that was, it was enough for maybe two or three circles as she went around me. You know, it was a slow goodbye. Now, I said, Paul, <laughs> why would you do that? I had this, this feeling that, that I was interacting with a really interesting animal that I didn't know I could interact with. And uh, I felt unchallenged and safe and everything, and I didn't want to break it off. It was just too interesting. And it was profoundly moving to him. It has stayed with him his whole life. I'd made a friend, you know, in very fast order. You know, I thought of her as a friend, although I imagine in her mind it was, well, that's not a very good-looking crab. I'll, I'll leave it. But um, in my mind, you know, we had a, a, some sort of, of relationship that I enjoyed and I appreciate and I remember fondly. What strikes me is that Paul tells this story like it was yesterday. It was nearly 60 years ago. This fond memory for Paul lives in a place that Richard describes as the habitat of the heart. That thing that happens that is so mysterious that so many of the people who tell their stories in this book describe one way or another. This moment of connection that is transcendent. Um, there's no name for that. And uh, Martin, there is some vernacular for people. Martin Buber, the great philosopher, I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. Um, Martin, <laughs> Martin Buber wrote a great essay called I and Thou, and it's about people. And he said, basically, you and I don't exist. What exists is between us. He considered that a kind of electricity, that relationship between us that some people call God. That's what so many of the people, whether it was an octopus or a bear or you know, a, a family of raccoons in the backyard or their dog. Again and again, people describe moments like that. Uh, and I consider that the habitat of the heart, that, that between place, between us and another, a member of another species. Mm -hmm. And we spend all kinds of effort uh, trying to preserve the physical habitat as we should, and we invest hardly anything in preserving and nurturing the habitat of the heart. Everything depends on the habitat of the heart. If one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. Hmm. So I think in some ways this may define part of the future of environmentalism to recognize that. Talk about your connection with nature. Where did it start? Because you've been amazing at pulling other people's stories together, and I'm keen to hear where it started for you. Well, the kids on the bus used to call me uh, nature, boy, nature Boy, so I didn't know whether to be embarrassed by that or not, but it sounded good to me. 
Um, I lived at the edge of Kansas City, uh, both the Kansas edge and, uh, and the Missouri edge. And I spent a lot of my boyhood in the woods, in the fields, along the creek, with my dog, a collie named Banner. And my parents may not have known where I was, but Banner knew where I was. And he was an extraordinary animal that I had, I had a sense then, and I still have it, that he was teaching me some kind of ethics. I said that a few years ago to an animal behavioralist who immediately dismissed me as, Anthro- you're anthropomorphizing your dog, you're romanticizing Banner. And uh, I said, no, I really, I had this feeling he was teaching me ethics in his behavior. We'd go out in the front lawn and he would protect the little dogs. There were no f- fences then in our neighborhood. He, he would protect little dogs from bigger dogs. He, he stopped a big dog from attacking a, a woman who lived up the street who came down hmm. in tears to thank us. He pulled me out of a creek, out of the ice. Or at least that's what my memory says. Our close relationship with the domesticated version of man's best friend goes back a long way, over 10,000 years. But it goes back even further to our wild past through the dog's ancient relative, the wolf. And when I was doing the research for Our Wild Calling, I ran into some research, in the German research, that there are two theories as to why gray wolves uh, evolved into, in some cases, dogs. All dogs come from gray wolves. And I, um, uh, you know, one theory is that we domesticated them. We threw them the bone beyond the campfire, and they came closer to us. Uh, The other theory is, and I think it's equally probably as valid, is they domesticated us. Hmm. We, We followed them as they followed the herd. We saw them working cooperatively, teamwork. We also saw, and we probably ate some of their leftovers. It wasn't just our leftovers that fed them. Their leftovers probably fed us. Richard links it back to the ethics he felt his dog was teaching him as a kid. And wolf families. We also watched their families. Wolves have incredibly uh, good families. Uh, So in that sense, these researchers actually use the E-word. This is ethics. This, these are animal ethics. And um, I think that our ancestors learned some ethics from wolves, possibly. Uh, and that has passed down tens of thousands of years to my dog, Banner, and he was teaching me. It's not just ethics that we might be learning from our canine friends. Richard speculates that they influence our ability to cooperate, our sense of order, and even our ability to love. There is so much we can learn from nature. After all, we're still a very young species, so maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that our connection with wild animals is so fresh in our history and in our minds. But I want to be clear, Richard isn't saying you should head out and seek a face-to-face encounter with a cougar or a poisonous snake or an octopus, but maybe just be more aware when out in nature. And I never say that nature is, is safe and we should take it for granted. In fact, that's one of its, one of its attractions. It was for me when I was a kid. And, um, you know, th- th- much of this is based on the study of awe, the science of awe. And uh, awe usually happens when people are outside their comfort zone and sometimes when they're in danger. Do you feel like the world needs more awe? Yes, uh, it, it really conspires against us uh, in many ways to kill awe. And that's the essence of, of wonder. Uh, 
All, all spiritual life comes from wonder. And where does wonder happen? It happens usually for a kid outdoors, crawling through the weeds to the edge where the trees begin and turning over a rock and looking under that rock and realizing maybe for the first time that he or she is not alone in the world. Richard Louvre is the author of Our Wild Calling. We have more information about his book on our website, thewildpod.org. On our next episode of The Wild, we head into the forest to look at trees and the extraordinary underground network they use to talk to one another. These trees in here, in this forest that we're sitting in, are communicating with each other. They could be talking about us right now. <laughs> we don't that. know what they're saying, <laughs> yeah. right? We'll look at the secret lives of trees. That's next week. I hope you're enjoying season two of The Wild. We love creating it, but to continue telling you these stories, we could use your help. Please consider making a financial gift to our home, KUOW Public Radio. You can find the information to donate at our website, thewildpod.org. And thank you. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. We have more information on our website at thewildpod.org. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. We had special help on this episode from Kyle Norris. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Daya Oxley, Tio Popescu, Mariah Powell, Brendan Sweeney, Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.